0: Friends, grace and peace to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Recently, I was reading a book review in a magazine that I subscribe to, and the reviewer was looking at uh, recently published children's storybook Bibles. And she took a really interesting approach. She reviewed the Bibles based on only one story and how they chose to depict it. And that story was this one the story of Noah, and the ark. And she thought that by by looking at how the editors chose to present this story in art and in poetry, she would be able to distill the philosophical and theological and sociological assumptions that those editors brought to the text. That is to say, what do they believe about who God is and who we are and what happens in the world? And she noticed a couple interesting things. And then she took a step back, and she also looked back at how the Noah story had been told and rendered in children's book Bibles over the last several decades, to see if perhaps there had been any shifts in trends about how people were telling this story, how that might tell us how things are changing in terms of how we understand God and ourselves. And again, she noticed some interesting things. Now, the first thing she noticed, and this is fairly obvious, is that there are some details about this story that get downplayed, if not entirely ignored, when the story is rendered for children. That is to say, I have never seen a Noah and the Ark mural rendered on the wall of a children's nursery that includes decomposing bodies of animals and humans, floating in the water or strewn about on the dry land as the water begins to recede, right? Because that's gross. That would be totally inappropriate, even though it's a fairly important detail in the story. There's a lot about this story that's not just rainbows and cute zoo animals. But we leave that out when dealing with children. But the other thing she noticed is that over the last several decades, there has been a shift in how people understand how the flood happened in the first place, and how God was or was not involved. That is, there's a strong tendency to want to let God off the hook. The way the story gets rendered often is that the world is a scary place, and Terrible and bad things often happen, and that's true, and kids should know that. But no matter what, no matter how scary and awful things might be, God is always there. That the rainbow promise is that God is present for us in the midst of all the scariness of life. Now, that that's a true story, and it's a good story, and it's one that I'm happy to tell my children. The problem is it's just not exactly the Noah story. Or at the very least, it's not the whole story. After all, this is a story, as terrifying as it may be, about a time when God looked out over a world that was rife with sin and evil and brokenness and lost God's mind. A time, at least as our ancestors would have us in which God's anger boiled over in a way that God could no longer control and wreaked havoc and devastation on the earth. And only after waking up the next morning, or actually more accurately, 40 days later, did God say, whoa, that was a bad decision. And then made a new promise for a new beginning. Now, I, I understand why this part of the story gets downplayed, especially when we're telling it to children. I'm not particularly comfortable talking about a God who gets so angry that God can no longer control God's anger. It's hard for me to, to, to fathom a God who would. Judge all of creation in such a horrible and devastating way. And I'm perfectly comfortable saying that some of this is our ancestors projecting their own vengeance, their own failures, their own brokenness onto God to try and understand a little bit more about us. And maybe if that's what's happening, that, that might help us dig in a little. Because whatever we might believe about God and God's anger about the sin and brokenness of the world, the truth is, if we are honest with ourselves, we are the kind of people who lose control. We are the kind of people who have been called to love fiercely, And yet, let frustration and anger and difficulty push us off our center. And when these things happen, stuff gets broken. And if we can't tell the truth about the brokenness of the world and the ways in which we have contributed to it, and absolutely the ways in which the world breaks us, through no fault of our own. If we can't tell that truth, then we, we fail to understand what God can actually do with us. Broken but still beautiful, us. Because the story of Noah and the ark, beyond being a beautiful story about rainbows and zoo animals, is a story about a God who knows how to work with broken things. Because ours is a God who knows how to start again, but never from scratch. Ours is a God who knows from the very beginning how to look over the roiling waters of chaos and say, I can work with this. A God who can look out over the broken pieces of Israel, having failed to live up to God's commandments, failed to be faithful, and and seen their beloved city and temple shattered into pieces. And God looked out over that devastated landscape and said, we can start over. A God who throughout the period of the judges when everybody did whatever they felt like doing and everything fell apart and constantly over and over and over things were really really bad and god said let there be a judge who can deliver my people and bring them back to sanity to to themselves again and over and over the pattern repeated until finally god said all right let's try something else and god did Over and over and over, the story that we begin again today to tell over the next few months will tell us of a God who looks out over a landscape of broken pieces and says, I can do something here. I can do something. All the way until next April, we find ourselves at the cross again, where it looks like everything is utterly broken, utterly lost. And God says, I can work with this too. Because that's what it means to belong to a God of grace and mercy. A God who is able to step into the brokenness of our lives and work with those pieces to make something beautiful. Several years ago, my wife and I were privileged to travel to Barcelona, Spain. It's a city just bursting with beautiful and often kind of bizarre art, but it's beautiful. It's a great place, most of it by the great artist Antoni Gaudi. One of our favorite places in Barcelona was this beautiful public park called Park Güell. And the centerpiece of that park is this series of beautiful benches that are absolutely exploding with color, beautifully rendered animals and sculptures coated in beautiful color, beautiful abstract and pristine landscapes. It's an absolutely spectacular sight. And every single piece of art in that park is mosaic. He was a great mosaic artist. Mosaic, if you don't know, is a form of art In which an artist pieces together out of broken shards of glass and tile beautiful images. If you look closely to those benches and sculptures that litter that park with absolute glorious beauty, you see nothing but tiny shards of broken plates and bowls and bathroom tiles, the kinds of stuff you would find heaped in a landfill in the hands of a brilliant artist, they become works of utter beauty and art. It seems to me that is the God we meet in this story, and indeed the God we meet throughout the scriptures, who from the very beginning has worked with broken things to make beauty possible again. However, those things were broken, whether by your own fault or the fault of others or just the way things are. God looks out over the landscape of your broken life, all the stuff you bring with you this day, all the places in your life where it seems like nothing good could come of this. And God says, yeah, I can work with this, and I will, and I will not stop until the promise of grace and mercy and life splash across the heavens and fill your life with love and light. And thanks be to God for that. Amen.